Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host, Craig, and I recently had the chance to chat to actor Julian Black Antelope, who played Chief George in Thunderbird and Adam Craig in The Flash. We discuss representation and the importance of telling stories from different perspectives. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with actor Julian Black Antelope. Hi, how are you doing today? Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm making my way around the Thunderbird production team, cast and crew and directing and so on. It's getting a great insight into different parts of that film. Just to start with, let's go way back to the beginning. So how did you get your start in the industry in acting and the various other things that you do as well? Because I know what you do, writing, producing and stunts as well. So quite a varied CV you have? I guess I dabbled in, I dipped my toe in uh, the film industry back when I was playing music and I uh, was living in Vancouver. And somebody said it'd be a great way to, you know, when you're in town off the road to, you know, meet some people, make a couple of bucks, if you do background. So I did background on a couple of major sets out there. Didn't really pay much attention to it, but it was pretty magical. One of them was Stargate SG-1. And I thought that was pretty cool how realistic everything looked inside the sets. And I still pursued music and I was playing music professionally. And I never really thought to give it another shot until 2004 on Steven Spielberg's Into the West. And that's where I stayed an ad. I was like sitting there broke in my apartment. My contract just ended where I was working and I was behind three months in rent. And I had a phone number that all I had to do was call it and I could go to the oil fields and make 10 grand a month or I could call this number and go make 10 bucks an hour doing background on a film set. So I chose the background. <laughs> <laughs> I chose to drive two hours, probably spending more on gas than I would be making that day. But it, I was just drawn to be on a film set and I just knew there was something that I wanted to do, but I just didn't exactly know what. And that was the project that got me my start into everything that I do. I was cast in my first role. I did some of my first stunts. And I also wound up getting hired to work in some crew capacities too. Cool. So you got a good view of the way a production works and the way it runs just from the ground up, really, just by doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, I mean, as a you know somebody who was new to acting, I didn't know anything about it and couldn't afford acting schools and stuff. So for me, working on a film set was my acting school. That was my day job. So as I was building myself as an actor, if there wasn't anything that I could audition for, there wasn't any stunts that I could do, I would work in crew capacity. So at least I could be in that arena and also still be close to the actors and watch and study them and learn and see what they do. Yeah, not everybody gets into it in the same way. Your co-star in Thunderbird, for example, Colton Wilkie, he talked about how he learned the craft of acting through just life experience and then getting into it in a different way. So it's interesting to hear that classes and all that kind of stuff isn't necessarily what you need to do to break in. Sometimes you just learn by doing and get your opportunities out. That's really interesting to hear. There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I think what makes an interesting actor is somebody with life experience. And also, I guess, whatever point it is in a person's life where you start to be comfortable in your own skin. For me, when I was younger, when I first was dabbling in background and stuff, I was far too insecure and arrogant and egotistical to probably become a good actor at that stage in my life, being 23, 25 years old. I was too immature. 
So I didn't get started in it until I was like 35, 38 years old. So I was a little bit more comfortable in my skin. And I realized that my cool hat was gone. <laughs> I, I think that has a lot to do with it. And by then I had a lot more life experience under my belt too. And are you drawn to any particular types of characters to perform? The characters that interest me the most are ones that are flawed. They're real people. They don't know they're flawed. Or maybe they do in some aspect, but they're just real human beings with real obstacles and mental obstacles, and physical obstacles in their world and in their lives. I've never played a hero per se. The hero's journey for me, that's in mainstream, is always kind of a bit of a boring one to me. You know, you get the girl, you figure out the solution, you have superhuman strength, nobody kicks your ass, all that sort of stuff. But I like being the guy that thinks that he's going to win, but doesn't. The guy that thinks that he's the smartest guy in the room, but isn't. <laughs> right? So that, those are more fun to play, I think. And there's a bit of that in your character in Thunderbird as well. He's very much a product of the place he lives in, at least as I saw it, in terms of all the tension that exists because of the race divide that exists in that setting and so on. So that seems to track with what you've said there. To me, that's who that character was. He was very much almost sick of that tension that existed in the place that he lived he was like chief george is a guy that grew up along before he was a chief in my mind he probably made a lot of bad mistakes bad choices but as he got older he kind of grew into his own shoes and got maturity and that's what made him a chief he's being the change that he wants to see and he encourages that and will and part of it too is taking ownership for your mistakes i don't know if you know this but in any indigenous culture in any indigenous language, there's no word for I'm sorry. I'm sorry only exists in the Western culture because that means you wash your hands of it. We have things in Blackfoot, it would mean that's my mistake or that is mine. You're referring to what happened and you're claiming it and taking responsibility for it. And that's what Chief George pushes Will to do. That's a really interesting insight. I didn't know that actually, but it does make sense considering the well, the way the Western world has infringed on other parts of the world historically that is very well documented isn't it and I suppose that's part of what the setting in Thunderbird is all about many many years after that the consequences of it but I found it interesting Colton Wilkie when I spoke to him talked about how it was the first showcase of certain traditions that had ever been put to film or put in a fictionalized film like that so was that part of what drew you to the project just getting to showcase that cultural side of things in a very real way yeah, a big draw to the project was the cultural aspect of it. And I have to say the care and integrity that they took around it was exceptional. And it's always good to see. I know when I've worked on projects in the past where somebody's maybe not quite as aware of the cultural accuracy or integrity, I'm not afraid to step over that line and offer a correction. And in this case, they really opened up the door to collaboration with the local band out there. And we were privy to come into one of their longhouses and see some of these dances and ceremonies and traditions that haven't been seen by outsiders for years and years and years and years and years. So it was really quite powerful. And we were very, very respectful. I know the production team and the producers are very respectful about asking what was appropriate to film, what they were comfortable with showing, et cetera. Yeah, and it certainly comes across because there is that authenticity to it. I suppose I've got that better understanding because I've spoken to the director and a couple of the other actors as well in terms of just getting to experience that culture firsthand. And it's not that it was put on for the film, it was just filmed what they would do, filmed the, the rituals, the dances, as you say, all that sort of stuff was just 
we'll put this in as you would perform it. Mm-hmm. So that's great to hear. I was doing a bit of research on the whole First Nations representation in film and TV over, well, ever since there has been film and TV. I think there's a very most troubled history of it with lots of assumptions and insensitivity, I suppose, is the right word. What's your view on the way it has been represented across media over decades and years? <laughs> I know it's a very big question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty loaded. I mean, just... For myself personally, Hollywood's done it with many cultures. It's had a very sort of racist, bigoted view. If you want to go back to the days of we're watching Jerry Lewis going like Miso Saudi and characters like that that are just so politically incorrect. When it comes to indigenous, <laughs> there was no indigenous actors. There was no such thing. So they're grabbing Italians or whoever the latest Caucasian star was and painting them brown and their stylized version, which was quite ridiculous actually and just the portrayal of native americans in the early days in spaghetti westerns was these simple savage people that were easy to fool and easy to pull the wool over and stuff and i'm glad to see that it has since evolved to that it's grown away from that i mean we still got some more work to do i think we're living in a great age right now but just in the last 10 or so years 10 to 15 years there's been great caretaking in producers reaching out to Indigenous people that the culture is that they're portraying and asking for advisement, asking for the input into the scripts. And if this is wrong, how do you see this being done? And taking that advisement to the bank to make sure it's portrayed accurately. And now with the whole Indigenous BIPOC movement, I think finally Indigenous people have a shot of being equally represented on camera. Because up until recently, Indigenous people were the most unrepresented demographic there was. Unless there was leathers and feathers and spooks and spirits and tracking, there's no need for Indigenous characters. But now that door is opening where we can be seen as doctors and lawyers and politicians and chiefs of police and all this other stuff. There's no Indigenous storyline. So that's why we have that character. You know what I mean? We just have these people doing these roles for the simple fact that, and they just happen to be Indigenous. I guess one of the examples that stuck out for me in the early days was a movie called Heat with Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro. And Wes Studi is an Indigenous FBI agent. And there's no Indigenous storyline with it. He just was a guy that was an FBI agent who happened to be Indigenous. So that's pretty cool, I think. He's just a guy and that happens to be his background, but it's not everything about who he is, which is, yeah, that's... That's something, because I remember growing up watching things like Peter Pan or Looney Tunes, where it would be very insensitive. And this is me as a very young child watching these things, and I don't know any better. I don't know any differently. Or in Star Trek Voyager with Chakotay as well. Yeah. Looking back, he's a very insensitive portrayal because it is just glom on any trait that you can think of to him. Vision quests and whatever else. He does it all and does none of it. I imagine particularly well. Yeah, to circle back to that, it's, it's growing from the days of directors and writers and producers going, oh, we just want to use that because it looks really cool or it sounds really cool to should you be using that particular aspect of the culture or should you be portraying it like this? Forget about how it looks or what you want. It's good that things are moving on and yes, obviously work still needs to be done, but films like Thunderbird are a great step forward, I think, in terms of understanding how these things work and how people live and what the realities of everything is. I think that's great stuff. I think that's important because 
me, I like to learn about other sides of things and watching things or reading things or being exposed to things. So for me, it's great. Yeah. Thunderbird is a film like that. Sort of like an introduction to reconciliation, if you will, even though it's in a fictional setting because Will is taking responsibility for the misgivings of his own people and their past and taking the burden and responsibility of caring. I just don't want to give away a spoiler for this, I guess. <laughs> of, you know, doing what he does in the film at the end. So The story is a redemptive one for Will, and he has to learn to cast aside some assumptions and wrong-headed beliefs that he's been holding on to. So that's not a spoiler, I would say. No? Okay, good. <laughs> I didn't want to ruin anything. That's his arc. It's what the film is, or it's what his part of the film is about. You recently appeared on The Flash which is a show that I really enjoy. It's a big CW show. I love superhero stuff, as the name of the website will probably attest to. So what was it like working on a, a big show like The Flash and in the capacity you did? You only really shared screen time with two other actors in your appearance. Yeah, it was a guest star, and it's still open-ended to the character I played, Adam Crikey. He uh, spoke directly towards the character that Carmen Moore plays. Yeah. Another indigenous actor. Shows like that are always top secret. You know, you know you're only <laughs> given the information that you need to know. But it does look like in future seasons that it could open out a little bit more because there's still unfinished business with my character and Carmen Morris. And my character is immortal. So he's got to come back sometime. He's just bad news. But it, it was a lot of fun, I have to say. I've never done a superhero film before. I knew the first AD, he was from Alberta, actually, and a few of the crew that were out there working on Alberta. So it was kind of ironic. But I had a lot of fun working on that show. And were you just segmented off with the actors you were working with, or did you get access to the larger side of the production with the other storyline that was going on? No, just because it was COVID and there was restrictions and stuff, they locked off the shooting days just specific to what my character's storyline was doing. So I never got to interact with any of the other characters, just who you see in the film. It's just a little weird, too, with COVID restrictions. You know, you're locked up in a hotel room and then you're tested and this, that, and the other, and then it's just a quick in and out. Now that restrictions are lifting, but there's no real socializing to be expected. In the past year, working on film sets, you're just kind of in your own bubble and that's it. And how did you find adjusting to the COVID situation? Because I imagine it must have been a massive adjustment from it being a very social place being on set to being a very isolated, stay away from everybody, only be unmasked for your scene and whatever. I guess those are two aspects that took the biggest getting used to. As an actor, yell cut and the director might give you some direction and you're applying those notes or you're thinking, you got to reset and you're doing the scene again. And you're always internalizing stuff and clocking your movements and figuring out how to run that scene a different way, but better. And, and it's always mask on, mask on. It's like, this doesn't fit with what I'm doing right now. It doesn't belong <laughs> in my character. So there was that aspect that took getting used to. And also the isolation factor too, because it is a little bit of a social thing too. You're sitting on set and you're chatting with the other actors. You might not be in scenes with, but it was, if you're not on set shooting, you're back in your trailer. Oof, just like that. So it took some getting used to, but I guess you can relax with the thoughts. <laughs> 
and I imagine it's a small price to pay just to get back to work and get people out there and get doing the things that they want to do again. Very small price to pay. I have to say that we're very fortunate in the film industry that we're one of the few industries that was allowed to keep moving ahead and keep working. I never would have thought in a million years that people in the arts would be the ones that are working during the pandemic. Very, very, very lucky and very fortunate and counting my blessings for sure because other people working in different industries were not so lucky. Yeah, for sure. And outside of acting, you've turned your hand to writing and producing. So how did you get into those aspects and what have you found some of the challenges and rewards that you've had from doing that, from getting into that side of things? I guess it goes back to when I was working crew and building myself as an actor. There wasn't a lot of Indigenous other crew people around that I could see. And I do know Indigenous directors and producers and writers are few and far between. And that was a time when Indigenous characters weren't really front and centre unless it was like a Western or some sort of Indigenous-themed movie. So I figured the only way to make change is sort of be that change. So if I could sit in the driver's seat, so to speak, in that place of decision-making or power, if you will, that I could make those changes. I could write an Indigenous character out front as a lead performer or whatever it is I wanted to do. And tell these stories that I wanted to tell that very few people had heard about. But, you know, when you're talking to people in passing, they find them so interesting. So that's what got me into it. And I didn't realize till 2016, till I actually started producing, that everything that I was doing in the crew capacities was teaching me everything that I needed to do to produce when I started. So it was kind of a weird thing. So it's just kind of making yourself a bigger voice out there and promoting that side of things and promoting that accuracy in a way. Yeah, and to tell Indigenous stories from an Indigenous perspective, not a Western perspective. And that was a big thing. And also for myself too, is to also to put Blackfoot culture out there in the Blackfoot language, because that's something that was not heard of. It's still new out here on the airways today, so to speak. And stunt performing. What was that like learning all that, getting to learn how to hurt yourself without hurting yourself and you know, all that good stuff. Well, I, I didn't take any training to be a stunt performer. <laughs> I got a bit of a kickboxing background, but I grew up riding horses and getting bucked off for free. So I figured I might as well get paid for it. Doing stunts is always a risk. It's always a gamble. It hurts. I don't care what anybody says. It always hurts to some degree. But for me, I kind of gravitated easily to it. I was athletic enough. I could ride horses and I knew how to fall from kickboxing and martial arts doing sports but also it was timing and i think believe it or not because of my experience as a musician as a drummer you could feel when the timing is right like you know if somebody's riding by and you're supposed to be running and jump onto a boat or a flat deck or something like that i could feel when it was the right time to do it if that makes any sense and just growing up on a farm and doing lots of stupid stuff as a kid didn't really realize that maybe that was my stunt training but yeah it's a lot of fun you just got to keep your wits about it and then if you get to go back on the flash next season i'm sure they'll love the fact that you can do some stunt work because they do a lot of stunt work on that show yeah that's pretty heavy action jackson stuff on there it seems I'm sure on a show like that, they'd want to get a stunt double for you. But so far in all my roles, you know, I started off doing stunts if there was no acting and vice versa. And then as I got more heavy into acting, once I started working consistently, I'm an actor who can do my own stunts, which makes it very appealing, I think, to a lot of directors. Like on Hold the Dark, for instance, 
Jeremy Solney was ecstatic that I said, no, man. I said, I'm going to get shot out the second floor window. I said, you don't need a stunt double to do that. I could do that. He goes, really? Because he had this great shot that he wanted to do where it's over top of me going down to the ground. So it really opens the door for directors to kind of keep their storyboards where they want it to be when an actor can do his own stunts. I'm up there in age, I'm in my 50s. So, so far, I haven't found something that I won't do yet, but I'm sure if I do, that's when I'll say, well, let the young guy that looks like me do it. <laughs> <laughs> for directors, they don't need to shoot away from the face anymore because you can just do it and things like that. Yeah. Creatively sure. cover it up. Yeah. So you're making a TV show called Secret History, The Wild West, which I read a little bit about. It sounds really interesting in terms of, from what you were talking about, getting that different perspective out there, telling those different sorts of stories. So can you talk a bit about putting that show together and what inspired it and where you want it to go, really? The inspiration behind it, it's kind of a torch that I've carried for quite a long time now, probably since 2010, if not a little bit earlier. Growing up, I knew about these Indigenous figures that had these powers from vision questing and that spirits in our culture bestowed upon them. But when I was going to school, I wasn't really taught about anything because I went to, to school in a small town in a Western school, not on the reserve. And for instance, learning something about Jerry Pot, he's a tracker for the Northwest Mountain Police. That's what everyone knows about him. And that's about all anyone knows about him. Nobody knows that the fact that he was half Blackfoot, that he identified with the Blackfoot side of himself, that his culture and his family was everything to him. So the inspiration for that show was all these characters that I knew about growing up. I wanted to bring to the screen and also show the real side of the history that is not in the history books that they don't teach you in school because it isn't very glamorous, I guess, so to speak. So that's what the secret history is. It's the stuff between the lines that really happened that we have to make sure culturally Western and indigenous cultures that we don't make those same mistakes again. And it's not a show that was designed to, point blame or throw a rock through somebody's window or something like that. But it's more like to let the door open and let a little fresh air in and get a different perspective than what we used to be told what happened. Yeah, because there is a lot about who writes history and what perspective that history is written from. And it's all these stories that can never be told because it doesn't match up with the narrative that's been maybe taught in schools or just appearing in documentaries or whatever. There's always hundreds of perspectives really so I'm a big fan of that idea of let's tell that other story or let's tell the lesser known story and let's dig into what actually happened at the time and give that fuller picture so I find that really interesting I do want to see it at some point I think it sounds great. One of the unique catalysts for the components of it is it's told through the eyes of the trickster and in our culture he's called Nappy the old man. We believe the old man Nappy walked amongst all races of man. He was just known by many different names and looked many different ways. And if you look at a trickster in all mythology and all cultures worldwide, there's a trickster in virtually every culture worldwide. So using this catalyst, he's kind of the person that breaks the fourth wall, fills in information, and also lets the gas off, so to speak, with a little bit of humor every now and then when it's needed for those uncomfortable moments too. So it's kind of a good device. I always believe humor, you know, you attract more flies with honey than you do vinegar, right? And I'm not about something that points blame. It doesn't get people anywhere. 
I don't think. I think we just need to talk about it and address it and move on positively. Yeah, just talk about it and then people will be willing to listen and then knowledge is shared and that's true. the way it works. Or yeah. it's the way it should work. Whether it ends up working like that is a larger debate that we won't have on this <laughs> in this audio. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it does sound great. I do want to have a look at it at some point when it becomes available in the the UK where I am just now because yeah, I like the idea and what you were saying about the trickster figure showing up in every part of culture I think that's what a lot of people when they study it is oh look here's the similarities between this religion or this folklore and this religion this folklore and it's just the way that these stories just are almost universal because everybody comes up with their own concept of a similar thing which is, yes. is really cool it kind of unites us in a way. That's the underlying goal of the show for me is to eventually bring it out. Like we're moving into our second season, which focuses on entirely indigenous women. That is the goal. It's something that bridges the cultural gap worldwide because everybody comes from tribes like in England and Ireland and Scotland. When you go back far enough, everyone comes from clans and tribes and it's the same thing. So really we're not different. We're not all different at all. We have more similarities than we do differences. And I'd like to see that bridged and opened up and shared. Well, I'm a Mackenzie living in Scotland, so one of the bigger <laughs> clans was the Mackenzie clan. So, yeah, I understand where you're coming from there a little bit. Not that I know an awful lot about my own family history or heritage, but I get it. I, I do understand the whole tribalism that crops up everywhere, or at least to some extent, I think. There's definitely a lot of truth in when you dig into it, people aren't that different. And that's a good thing. Yeah, we in Blackfoot, when we greet a large group of people, or more than one, we say Nixuqua, which means we're all related. Or you're, you say, okay, Nixuqua, hello to all my relations. So we believe that we're all related. And it's kind of like if we could all put aside borders and differences and skin colors and stuff, we'd realize that we're just one people, one planet, one big giant family. Yeah, it's a great sentiment. Really interesting. So project-wise, what have you got coming up that you can talk about? Is there anything major in the pipeline that you can discuss obviously there might be things that you can't producing wise moving into season two which is secret history women warriors do have another project on the horizon right after that a feature film endeavor that i'm going to be doing as an actor a couple things in the wash right now we're seeing when they're going to start up again and be greenlit but as far as that goes i just finished a couple of major projects here locally which i don't think i can even say what they are yet <laughs> <laughs> Again, but I'll just take whatever comes too. We'll see what comes through the door. I'm always open to that. And then next season on The Flash, they might call you back to cause some mayhem. Oh, I hope they do. I really hope they do. <laughs> it'd be fun. I, I think it'd be a fun character to explore. He's uh, one of those guys that's flawed. <laughs> Thinks he's right. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing that she was dead and all that stuff. Yeah, I find that interesting. It was a very short segue into something, but hopefully it will build into something because... I liked uh, the Kramer character who you played against and in that story. So I'd be eager to see it picked up. Well, thank you very much. They usually get around to it eventually on that show. They don't really let things linger. So you'll probably be okay. <laughs> I know. I'll be all right. I'll look forward to it. I'll look forward to it for sure. So the last question is one that I always ask for this being a superhero nerdy focused podcast. I know you've already had one, so it might be the same one, but what superpower would you have and why? What superpower would I have why wow that's a tough one I don't know if you can go back through time or something if you're immortal geez it's a tough one (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a tough one. I think if you could stop time, freeze time at will when you wanted to, they could move things around, make minor adjustments without causing too much chaos, and then start it again. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of mess with people a little bit, just move their pen that they were trying to use or something. And yeah, just a little bit of that. Yeah, stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool one. I don't think I've had that one before, actually. People normally want to fly, which is great. How about you? I would like to have super speed, like the Flash, because I tend to give myself too much to do and I'd like to be able to do it quickly. I'd also like to be able to travel quickly, but I still want to see places. So I'd pay attention to them as I was running past. <laughs> but see, if you if you do too much already, if you had super speed, you'd just be doing an insane amount of stuff because you could do it faster. <laughs> yeah. So I'd be able to write quickly. I'd be able to, well, I wouldn't be able to edit quickly because that takes as long as it takes, but I'd be able to do a lot more. I'd get a lot more done if I could move a lot quicker. My brain could work quicker as well. That would be a good thing. Let's see if you could freeze time. Boom. Yeah. Get all this stuff done. Start it again. It's like a second just passed. <laughs> yeah. Although I wouldn't want to still age while I was freezing time because then I would get old pretty quickly, according to other people. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So if time was moving for me, suddenly I'm 10 years older. <laughs> and it's only been a few days for some people, so that wouldn't be ideal. Totally good point. No, that's a great answer. I think freezing time's a good power. It's been used to great effect in various things. In Heroes, for example, the character Hero could do that. And nice. It was good fun. Thanks very much for your time and all the best for your future projects, season two of Secret History. And perhaps if you appear in The Flash again and all those other things that you can't talk about, all the best for that. I really do hope they become everything that you want them to be. And it's been amazing talking to you, getting your perspective on different things. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my chat with Julian Black Antelope. I wish him all the best in his future projects. If you like what you heard here, then hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any major podcasting app. Apple users, please leave us a star rating and a comment. If you want to discuss this interview or anything else, then you can find us on Facebook and Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, I hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.